Good morning. My name is Job Jackson. This is my wife, Ashley Jackson. This week, we continue to celebrate God's gospel solution for the pain and problems of life by studying God's passionate desire to connect with his people. Looking through the lens of the Lord's Supper, today's passages help us see the lengths God has gone for his people to nourish our hearts with his grace. Please join us in reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give you directions when I come. All flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. And I add my greetings to those that you have already heard and invite you to keep your bulletin open. We're going to walk through this passage. If you would rather open your Bible, uh, we, please do that. Uh, we have Bibles in the pew racks in front of you as well. Uh, or you can use your phone. Uh, the hope is that uh, the Word of God, used by the Spirit of God, that truly in our hearts will be more transformed, deeper connected uh, in our relationship with a God that loves you. And he wants you to have real relationship with him. Uh, Paul is uh, writing this letter to the Corinthian church. Uh, the Corinthian correspondence this is his first letter we're studying right now uh, that he wrote. And he's beginning a new section here. Uh, this section ends in 1 Corinthians 14. At the end of that, we, we read the uh, celebration, the emphatic exclamation that God is not a God of disorder, but he's a God of peace. 
And from here, for the next few chapters, uh, Paul is addressing life together, particularly in worship. And here we're going to look at the Lord's Supper. Now, you'll remember uh, our pastoral image that we're using. And Paul is writing to a specific congregation in Corinth. And we only hear one side of the conversation. So all we hear is what Paul is saying to Corinth. And so we've got to work to understand the actual context so that we can elevate the, the teaching and apply it appropriately. And today's a beautiful invitation for you and for me because all of us are disordered in our primary connections. So we have no peace, frankly. Jesus Christ, good news, this is the gospel, he's done the work necessary for us to be at peace with God and with ourselves. This begins with personal conversion, and it carries through life in reordering our connections, the connections of our heart primarily to his covenant love and his covenant faithfulness. Now, we're going to look at the Lord's Supper as a sacrament in the broader category of a means of grace, ways that God has given us to feast upon his goodness, his love, his covenant faithfulness, so that our hearts may be whole and found in him. And we miss that opportunity when our hearts are primarily connected to things outside of Christ. Now, I'm going to make a statement, and I'm making it to all of you, and I, I will defend it after this if you need me to, but I want you to hear it and feel the weight of it. Your primary problems in your life come from the disordered primary connections of your life. Now, look, maybe you're wrestling being paralyzed with fear from global economic insecurity. Maybe you're with the, the rising tide in our country of loneliness. We have a pandemic of loneliness right now. Maybe your anxiety is also, with all the data, it is just paralyzing. We have the highest rate of anxiety we've had, uh, really, since this has been on record. And the division in our country, oh, the division in our world, it is deep and it's often dark. In our fallen condition, perpetuates and exploits these. It makes them worse when our primary connections are disordered. The gospel invites us to reorder our hearts and our hopes by finding our primary connection in Jesus Christ. So when we come to studying the Lord's Supper, we understand that the general means of grace that God gives his people are really threefold. First is the word of God, proclaimed publicly, studied privately. Second is prayer, connection with God, participated in corporately and celebrated in our closets. And third, it's the sacraments of God. And so the sacraments are twofold, the Lord's Supper, which we're going to study, but also baptism. Now these, this whole thing, I want you to see it as a lens, a lens by which we can begin to get a glimpse of the great distance God has gone so that your heart can be reordered in its connections to be primarily connected with him so that your souls can be nourished by his work. Now, the power of connection. 
You see, all kinds of studies have revealed that connection, the connection of humanity, it's something we're created for. People have studied survivors of Holocaust camps, and they found that the exponential difference between people who survived and who didn't is a horrific activity, horrific event. But the majority of people who survived had a primary connection with someone. Connection is essential to survival, but not just in places of extreme suffering. I've seen the slums of Africa, different major cities in Africa. There's pockets of widows who far exceed the life expectancy of the country. Why? They have this tight-knit connection, community. You see, children that are in hospitals, studies have been done. In fact, it started in the 30s when they realized that there were orphans that were dying at a disproportionate rate in children's hospitals. And so researchers began to wonder why. Here's why. Because of their lack of connection. And so out of that came what's really fascinating and worth your study, uh, just the, the science of attachment theory. It's phenomenal. But it's true with trauma survivors, which we'll look at in a minute, and mental health. Neuroscience confirms your brain is actually wired to thrive off of connection. Uh, a book that was written by a man named Matthew Lieberman. Uh, he wrote a book called Social. And he studied the wiring of our brain for social connection. And he very helpfully articulates how the physical pain that we feel in life is actually mirrored. It's real emotional pain when we don't have the connection that we need. So here's what that looks like. Uh, it, it looks like in a familiar way, say, oh, he really hurt my feelings. Or when she dumped me, she broke my heart. And we say these things metaphorically, but we actually feel them physically because you're wired here and here to connect. And this is why in our world, you know the pain of not connecting. If you ever went to middle school, and you had to sit alone, you know the pain of not connecting. But beyond that, if you've been to any new school at all, or, or you've moved to a new place, or started work in a new company, the awkwardness, the pain of not feeling connected, if you're a part of a family or a tight group of friends and you found yourself on the outside looking in, you know that pain of, of not feeling connected. Uh, you, you, you know the significance of belonging to someone or something. And that's why in our culture, we have this rise of people tracing their family heritage, their family trees. To know that we're a part of something, we're connected to something greater. It's why in our culture, we love sports. We love that greater identification and that sense of connectedness or going to a concert where we feel the energy and together we can celebrate the victory. This is why in our culture there's a massive market for clubs and organizations, whether it's health clubs or game clubs or any other specific clubs. We're wired for connection. And we find strength 
we find security, we find sustainability, we find a sense of identity, we find just important things that we need for survival in our connectedness. But here's the principle. If our hearts find a primary connection, looking to something that's created, For only what God can give us in our creation with him. Not only is that idolatry, but that is for our ruin. It's frankly why you're never satisfied. And you move from connection to connection to connection to connection because our primary connection is intended to be with the Lord. The problem is that since the garden, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God, And they were hiding from God. We've joined them in looking to created things instead of our creator. But the good news of the gospel is this. That God is still in the business of seeking and saving the lost, of finding his people and asking, why are you hiding? And he welcomes us with his grace to reconnect with his love. We don't have to settle for the corrupt connections of our culture. But we can celebrate the restorative connection we find with the Lord. So the first thing that we see in verses 17 and 22, Paul addresses the abuse of participation in God's means of grace. Now remember, this sacrament, the Lord's Supper, it's just a lens by which we're seeing the ways that God wants to connect with you. And he gives a directive to the church. He begins with this. In the following instructions, he says. He's not giving a suggestion. He's actually giving direction. And he moves quickly to a diagnosis. He says that when you get together, it's not for the better, but it's for the worse. Do you see that in verse 17? Well, why is it for the worse, Paul? Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. That word for division that is used, the schemata word there, it's where we get the word schism from. And it's the same word that Paul's used in 1 Corinthians 1.10 when he commanded the church, let there be no divisions among you. Because we have a primary connection, a primary identity in Jesus Christ. The divisions are unacceptable, and what they expose, verse 18, are the devout. For the fractions among you are there in order that you who are genuine may be recognized. This genuineness, this sense of, of being proven or tested, it is a devoutness, and this word is echoed again later. It's important for us to understand, but for now, we see verse 20, the destination is wrong. When you come together... As a church, it's not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. Well, that's a bold statement. Why are they there? 21. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. And I love this apostolic, what? You know, he, it's a word, it's a question, but not a question. What? You've got to be kidding me. What? I love that. Here's what we need to know. Let's listen as much as we can to the other side of the conversation, okay? In Corinth, there were lots of associations. There were lots of clubs. There were lots of organizations that used meals as a time of celebration. 
as a time of participation. And it was very, very common in those associations and organizations of the clubs in Corinth, where the wealthy people would have better food, better drink, and more of it. And the poorer members of this association would have less food, less drink, and not as good a quality. And they were shaped in this way. If you can imagine a club in our culture or a social group in our culture where the wealthy have uh, very nice food, very nice drink, they're weighted on hand and foot, but the people that can't have the same means of income or maybe they work there, they don't eat in the same place. They eat in a different place. And they don't have as much, and it's not as good. That was what was normal in Corinth. And so when the church met in houses, and, and we can assume from Paul's letter, uh, particularly places like Romans 16.23 and other places where he identifies a civic leader in Corinth named Gaius, right? He, the, the Corinthian church is probably like other house churches at the time that we see in Philemon or uh, you know, other places in Scripture, where wealthy individuals, they had large homes, and most people, you know, probably up to 50 people, they've excavated large homes in Corinth, and they have large living rooms where most people would, would feast on the Lord's Supper. Now, it's very different than, than what we do here. Uh, we have, like, tiny tic-tac breads here, all right? And I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get the front of the line. You're going to hear me advocate for a more holistic celebration of the Lord's Supper. In fact, I'll be the first one behind someone that goes to our elders and asks for weekly Lord's Supper. I said it last service when it was on tape. I'll say it again. This is really an opportunity. And let's use some good bread, you know. But they didn't just, they weren't debating over like Tic Tacs or loafs. They had huge meals. And huge drinks in places like Jude and Peter. It's called a love feast. And it was, it was actually misunderstood by the culture in the early uh, uh, ancient uh, times in antiquity. Because they didn't know what Christians did at their love feasts. But in Corinth, we know what they did is they lived more like their culture and their clubs. Instead of having a feast where there is no Jew, no Greek, there is no rich or poor, no barbarian or Scythians, this, I mean, this is why we studied three weeks on, on giving meat to idols. Like, these were important meals. But they were living like the culture. Their primary connection was what was dictating their actions. And it was leading to division. Now, let me illustrate how that works, okay? So, if you have a primary connection of a favorite sports team, all right, let's just pretend like everybody around here loves college football. Yeah. All right. You have a favorite team. You have your favorite colors. You know your own cheers, your own fight songs, and there's a real sense of unity with everybody cheering for the same team. When we have a primary connection, that establishes a set of norms. And those norms give us a, a more intimate community, but also it leads to division because there's other teams. And these other teams have different colors, different cheers, different fight songs. They have different norms. And so it's hard for two fans that are intensely loyal, that have embraced the norms of each of their home cultures to come together. Now, think about it socially. If we have people that have established the norms of a, of a very wealthy society, 
but they're called to live in unity with people who live in poverty and have these sets of norms, those norms are going to be hard to come together. Now, we can identify with this more than we want to admit in San Antonio. In San Antonio, we celebrate what we like to call a familia culture, right? Puro San Antonio es la familia. We love pure San, o, pure San Antonio. We say all the time, like, oh, we're a family culture. We're like a big, small town. You know, you go places. But here's the truth. Here's what the data shows. The data shows that the people in our city who are affluent and well-off, they understand the norms of affluent society. And we embrace those primary connections into norms at the expense of a familial culture. How do you say that? Why do you say that, Mitchell? Because in our city of San Antonio, we have the largest discrepancy, this is true, the largest distance between rich zip codes and poor zip codes, more than any other city in the country. With that, we've got the highest poverty rate of any metro city right now. More people percentage-wise living in poverty in our city than any other major city in the country. Well, why is that? It's because we embrace the norms of our primary connections. And the gospel frees us from those norms and gives us a new set of norms in Christ because we have a new primary connection where there is no rich and there is no poor where we're all one in Jesus Christ. And so when we come to uh, the free place to acknowledge our abuse of participation, then we can take up the gospel invitation. Now you got to hear this. When Paul diagnoses this with the Corinthian church, you don't hear any condemnation. He doesn't come down on them and condemning. All he does is echo Jesus' invitation. It's unbelievable. Look at this. Uh, the second thing, the invitation to participate in God's means of grace. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed... Now, this is just stopping there. Just stopping there. The night he was betrayed, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is God. Jesus has had disciples that he's lived with, a family that raised him. The night that he was betrayed? Yes. You see, Jesus was betrayed by people close to him so that people that are far from God, enemies, hostile towards God, could be primarily connected with him. He goes on to say that after giving thanks, he, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. Jesus was broken. So that those of us who are broken in life by trying to find a primary connection with something that's created, exhausted, wounded, weak, that we can come to him to be made whole, wholehearted. You see, he goes on to say the blood is a new covenant of God's grace, poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. You see, only in the work of Jesus can we freely, without shame, unplug our connections that are corrupting us and ruining us and reconnect with our Father who loves us and created us. The Lord's Supper, when, when seen through this gracious invitation, free from condemnation, 
It really is like the glasses. If you saw the uh, solar eclipse yesterday, now you, you look at the sun, well, you'll be blinded, don't look too long, I hope you didn't, uh, but you, you can't even really see what's happening until you put on the glasses and then, wow, that's really powerful and beautiful. Well, the Lord's Supper is the same way. It, it's, this, it's this means of grace in where we can participate actively with the work of Jesus. Now, it must be noted that the body and the blood, that is the bread and the cup, it is not a physical presence of Jesus. The physical presence of Jesus, uh, biblical uh, students and, and Reformed Christians, we join Stephen in Acts 7, where he sees Jesus locally present at the right hand of the Father. He's locally up there, but spiritually, he's in the bread, he's in the cup, so that we can have an active participation in the very real presence of Jesus Christ. Now, what this does for us when we can rightly see and participate, beholding the majesty, it retrains our hearts in looking for connection. I want to use an illustration. I've been uh, really fascinated lately. I don't know uh, if you all are familiar with, with how trauma affects relationships. And really the epicenter of studying trauma-affecting trauma relationships is foster care. And we have a foster ministry in our church. It's called the Love Initiative. And we try to come around foster families. Uh, Deborah's out there, our, our heads, uh, the Schluters. Uh, uh, we have lots of people in our churches, Sunday school classes. Uh, Circle 20 has been killing it and caring for our uh, most recent foster family. Uh, but there's just all kinds of research that shows how children... That, are, that don't have a connection with their parents or there's an abused connection, how much it affects them. And so when you become a foster parent, this is why we've got to come around families that are fostering in a, in a powerful way we have to, is because parents have to understand you can't try to connect with foster children in the same way we, can, we parent all other children because they have trauma at the center of their understanding and connection. Here are ways that it affects. Are you ready for this? Uh, foster children have, act, when they have no connection with parents or abused connection, this is all data proved, they have brain development that is hindered. And it's not just memories that are bad, but it's emotional health, it's judgment, it's a being consumed with fear. Uh, Common attachment disorders come from this, but it affects children raised in foster care with body and biological development. That could be manifest in uh, growth, physical growth, certain illnesses and sensory sensitivities. It affects belief systems. What you believe about yourself, and oftentimes just feeling completely unworthy, damaged goods, powerless, and it affects behavior. It, it, it becomes unpredictable, disruptive, sometimes antisocial. And above all, it affects relationships. There is zero trust of people for children that are passed from foster care to foster care. And they don't have, I mean, it's a great thing, but foster parents have the opportunity to reorder relational trust. Um, I mean, just as an example, this is true. A foster family uh, in our church, they have a foster kid that wakes up in the middle of the night, under three years old, asking, why, why? Under three. 
what, what kid under three is asking why? One that has been really messed up because trauma. And, and so I want to read a couple of things from this guy named Bruce Perry. He wrote a book called What Happened to You? It's a conversation about trauma and resilience and healing. He says this, what I've learned, what we've learned from talking to so many victims of traumatic events, abuse, and neglect is that after absorbing these painful experiences, children begin to ache, physical pain. There's a deep longing to feel needed, to feel validated and valued. It begins to take hold of them. As the children grow, they lack an ability to set a standard for what they deserve. They don't feel worthy. This is... And if that lack is not addressed, get this, what often follows is complicated, frustrating patterns of self-sabotage, violence, promiscuity, and addiction. Our primary connections matter. He goes on. Our major finding, listen, is that this is wild. Listen to this. Your history of relational health, your connectedness to family, community, and culture is more predictive of your mental health than your history of adversity. This is similar to the findings of other researches, researchers looking at the power of positive relationships on your mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical health. Connectedness has the power to counterbalance adversity. And the capacity to be connected in meaningful and healthy ways is shaped by our earliest relationships. You see, our connection with people, our families, our friends, it, it, it is essential to our survival, like oxygen, like water, like food. We've got to have this connection. And so when, when foster children come into foster families, they've got to learn how to reparent, to rebuild trust. This is like the Lord's Supper. You have trauma from your misplaced prior, primary connections in this world. When you primarily connect with social networks, when you primarily connect with alumni networks, when you primarily connect with anything created to find that which only God can give you, then the corruption that comes from that, it leads to trauma and you have trouble trusting, trouble seeing, trouble living into the love that your heavenly Father has for you. He wants to help you connect with Him. To find what your heart is really hungering for. To flourish. And to become the man or the woman that He created you to be. This is the invitation, not just through the Lord's Supper, but through all the means of grace that God gives us to move us from our troubles and our trauma and know that we're covenantly safe to connect with our Creator, our Redeemer, our Father, our friend. This leads us to the last point, that if there is such a gracious invitation that's free from condemnation, then we are able to practice self-examination for more fruitful participation in God's means of grace. You see, it really is a great exchange when we, when we come to the table. I love the way Calvin talks about the Lord's Supper, the, the real 
spiritual presence of Christ. And he talks about it in great exchange. We come in our poverty and we feast on his riches. We come in our sin and we feast on his forgiveness. We come in our mortality and we feast on his immortality. We come in our unrighteousness and we feast on his righteousness. I mean, I love it. We come in death and we feast on life. But we can apply it and even extend it, this exchange to other means of grace. We come in our loneliness and, and we feast on his love. We come in our ruin and we feast on his redemption. We come in our emptiness and we're filled with connection with him. This amazing invitation invites us to be like a you know, high school kid with bad acne. You're going to look in the mirror before you go out and so you can have really good connections with people. We outgrow that, right? The need to look in the mirror before we go out, don't we? Don't we? No. All of us do it. We self-examine ourselves so that we can go out and have better connection with people. If there's zits that need to be popped or eyebrows that need to be painted in or food that needs to be taken out of our teeth, we want to know it so we don't show it. You know what I mean? So it is with the gospel. There's, there's vertical and horizontal implications that we're free in the secure love of Christ to look at our hearts, to look in the mirror and, and be honest with where our primary connections are. There's no condemnation. It's just grace, gracious invitation for real participation in the connection that we're created for. And we don't have time to unpack it all. I wish we did. But maybe that's another reason why we have weekly Lord's Supper. Shorter sermons, right? Come on, join me. I need somebody to make a motion to the session. I'll get behind you. So whoever eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, you'll be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. An unworthy way is that if you're coming and you are completely embracing your primary connections that are ungodly, they're creaturely, then you will not engage worthily. So we, we, we examine our hearts to really get the full effect of this connection with Christ. But we also want to make it so we fully connect with our brothers and sisters. Now, there's a lot that goes into this about examining ourselves, the physical health that's associated with our spiritual health, and the good news of judgment for God's people. That is the Lord's discipline. It's where he ends so that we're brought more in line with his design for our life and our loves, and we can be reordered. But we're just going to move quickly to the so what. Why does this matter to you? Here's why it matters. You have a God that loves you, that longs to be your primary connection. It's for your good and for his glory. Two, his grace is big enough. It's big enough for us to be honest with where our hearts are connecting that aren't him, where we're looking for things that only he can give us. And three, the power by his spirit, through his word, through prayer, through corporate participation in worship, the sacraments, we can untangle the loves of our hearts and we can refocus you know, your heart, you, I'm not going to say your heart hungers for this. Let me just say this. You need peace. You need hope. You need security. You need strength. You need a sense of significance. And you will not find it anywhere in this world. 
you will only find it in the connection that you're created for in Christ. That's what's there. And then from that, we can feast on God's grace. We can feast on his word to us, intimate relationship with him, corporate life and worship together. And fifthly, when the fruit begins to be fertilized and to grow in our hearts, then we can keep nourishing it. Give us some more of that good stuff. And finally, finally, you know what we get the fruit of? A place where we can truly belong. The last, the last two verses, like, Christians, just wait. He tells a Corinthian church, just wait on your brothers and sisters. Just wait on them. This freedom of not always worrying about yourself. Focus on yourself, your needs, self-promotion. This freedom of the gospel, of knowing that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, that joy is you. And to have that mind among us, Philippians 2, that we cannot think too highly of ourselves. We're free from that. But in humility, we consider others better than ourselves. That's freedom to wait on each other, to realize that the center of gravity, the focus of the world, it's not you. It's Jesus. And when we realize that, man, there's all kinds of restoration renewal for you. Since the fall, since our first parents disobeyed, life has been disordered. And through the work of Jesus, we are, through the cross, we're able to reorder all of life, beginning with our hearts and where we find our primary connection. And the Lord's Supper is one of two sacraments that with other means of grace, God invites you to refocus your primary connection on him and his love. You don't even know. You can't even begin to comprehend how much your father loves you how much he longs for you to have a primary connection in him. It's, it's beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, we, we thank you for your love. We thank you for uh, the work of Jesus. That while we were enemies and hostile, disconnected from you completely, that you loved us. And you became disconnected so that we could reconnect with you. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would work those truths out in our heart and that you would deepen our affections, our desire, our love to want to be primarily connected with you. Lord, we believe, but would you help us with our unbelief? We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. Let's stand together and respond to God's word by singing hymn number 687, All Things Are Yours.
you're a first-time visitor with us, we've got a gift bag for you out there. Uh, and that gift bag, is it free? You mentioned it first. Yeah, no, it's free. Mike says it's free, so take it. Uh, we want you to know you're welcome. We want you to connect with our church family. If you're here today and you need prayer, scratch that. Let me say this. You need prayer. And if you are open to receiving prayer, uh, we have somebody that wants to serve you by praying with you and for you. Go out these doors on your left. There's a small a little chapel out there. Someone's in there. They'd love to pray with you and to pray for you. And all of us go out into a world where people are experiencing ruin from misdirected connection. And they're longing for restoration from a, from a life-giving primary connection. And Christians go out in that world as God's blessing. And you do so with the benediction. So if you're able to raise your hands to receive God's word from Hebrews, I've been using this benediction this series. Uh, I love it. Now to the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in you that which according, is according to pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Go in peace to love and to serve the Lord.